Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by Jacinta from Sydney. Jacinta works in mental health. She's 10 months sober and amazing. She's also one of our grads from our How I Quit Alcohol grads group. She's just an awesome, beautiful human. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jacinta. How are you? Great, Danny. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on. It's taken a bit to get you here. 
It's been a bit of stalking on my end. (laughs) Very good work. You got me here. Um, I fought it, but I'm here. Right. Fantastic. So, well, firstly, just like everyone that we have on the podcast, tell me when you first started drinking. Yeah. Um, I think like most people, I, I, you know, just in my sort of teenage years, probably about, probably about 16, I think I probably have tried it, probably tried it sort of maybe 15, 16 and yeah, just with some friends from school and just, yeah, seeing what the taste was and what it felt like. And what was it like for you? Did you like it? Did you not like it? It was like, oh my God, I'm home. How was it? Um, I remember feeling quite silly, which I quite enjoyed. Up until that point, I think alcohol was something that I'd seen was, you know, sort of around my parents and their friends as generally a fairly happy kind of thing to be doing. So I had sort of good memories of mum and dad being quite relaxed at that point. And that sort of took a little bit of a turn when I was about 13. And I think that's when it all sort of came to a head that my mum actually had a problem with alcohol and had a seizure while just my brother and my sister and I were home and dad was away for work. So that was really quite petrifying. We didn't really know what had happened, but I do sort of remember being in the hospital and being asked by a doctor how much my mum drank and getting a sense that possibly I needed to under-report what that was or that a few glasses of wine each night was maybe, um, you know, not, not what I was meant to sort of say. So I remember sort of then thinking this is a bit strange. So I think alcohol for me before I actually tried it myself was something that I then learned was, you know, a strange thing that it made some people happy, but it clearly didn't make my mum happy. And, you know, it it was all just very sort of confusing, I suppose. Wow. When mum had that seizure, was that because she'd stopped drinking or because she had drunk too much? Do you know why that was? Yeah, it's really interesting because I've been thinking a lot about this and I think what's different What's different now compared to back then is that we talk more about these things. So my mum really didn't talk about that time afterwards. It was all very taboo and not to be talked about. And, you know, my understanding was that it was because it was about 5.30 in the morning and my understanding was that she hadn't had any alcohol. I'm not sure whether she was consciously trying to stop drinking. She was a shift worker and I I think by that stage was probably drinking at quite strange sort of times all over the place rather than sort of just simply in the evening. But I understand that she, she was, she hadn't had a drink and then that's what caused the, um, the seizure. So it was a withdrawal. Wow. That's so full on. And for kids to have to kind of deal with that fallout. And like you said, like being at the hospital and knowing that you had to kind of cover up a little bit that you just knew that. Yeah, it was, Mm. I, I just knew that the way that it was all sort of playing out was I was in a room on my own without my brother and sister being asked about how much mum drank and I thought this is weird I knew enough to know that I'm being questioned about something that they obviously think has something to do with what's happened to my mum and you know uh, I think that's when I started to put some pieces together and realized that maybe mum was you know pretty moody and and could be pretty nasty and horrible and that possibly alcohol was involved with that. How did mum's drinking look for you when you were growing up like you said at at first it seemed like that sort of would relax people, including her, but how did it sort of evolve with her as you kind of got older and had more of a realisation as to what was happening? Yeah, look, I think that I think that she sort of went from being quite the life of the party and quite funny, but she also could be really quite um, scary and, and quite insulting and she would get quite angry and say really hurtful things and 
you know, I, I look back and she obviously hadn't remembered saying certain things. And I, I remember being quite confused about how she couldn't remember saying I was allowed to go somewhere. And now she was saying she'd never said that. And just various things that I found as a young person really quite confusing. But largely she was, you know, she could be quite verbally abusive. Wow. And I can just imagine like that sort of feeling of dysregulation as a kid to be told one minute, yes, you can do something and then told the next day, no, what are you talking about? I never said that. That would make you even question your own judgment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Has that played out for you at all in your adult life, that kind of sense of confusion? Look, I really think it probably has. And I, you know, I often think that I could do with a good good course of therapy myself. But um, I I think that um, a lot of the things that she said to me, you know, um, and I've got a much deeper understanding about that now. And I don't think she was inherently a bad person, but, you know, there were sort of remarks about, you know, needing to eat less and lose weight and things like that. And I think those kinds of remarks definitely have played a big part in my own self-esteem and that sort of thing. But, you know, as I said, I, I think I have a much deeper appreciation to what was happening for her at the time as opposed to it being a really true kind of reflection of her character. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the hard part, isn't it, to sort of see, it's almost like you can love your parent as your parent but then there's a, a separate entity, which is your parent that's drug or alcohol affected. I remember going through this with my own therapist once that, you know, you can you can still love your mum, even though they've, if they've done something horrific when they've been under the influence, you can still have that space within you. But to realise yeah. that they are actually, in fact, two different people. And that gave me a lot of freedom in being, being able to see that because I guess sometimes the behaviour, you think that's unforgivable that's it I've got no mum but you still want to have a mum like it's yeah. so it's a very hard balance what what do you think without you know you don't have to go into this if you don't want but what do you think it sounds like for your mum to get to that level there must and to be able to say things like that she must have had her own level of trauma do you think she had, had oh she yeah she definitely did yeah. you know she she used to sort of talk a, a, quite a bit about her dis- own dysfunctional sort of relationship with her own mother um so I know look she you know had her own trauma and everything and it you know it really did make a lot of sense and I think for my mum she really did just seek to get her mum's her own mother's approval and other people's approval from the from the outside you know my mum was a really well presented attractive woman who was for the most part, until things got really bad, quite high functioning and an amazing cook and her house was always clean. And so she she really did. And I, again, it's, you know, that benefit of hindsight and being an adult can look back and see that she really did battle her own sort of demons and trying to kind of put across something where deep down she was really struggling and finding things quite difficult. And that's the thing, like, it's it's so easy for us to demonise someone for having an addiction problem, but they, mm. like us, are dealing with their own trauma the only way that they know how. Totally. I think just knowing that can give you such a sense of forgiveness as well and compassion towards them that they just didn't know any other way. They never taught. I mean, God, we weren't taught. So, you know, going a generation back and, and beyond, how were they ever taught how to deal with what they had faced and their own traumas and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think so, it's healing kind of recognising that as well. So I feel sort of, you know, my mum's passed away now, but I really do feel like that's been quite a healing thing to recognise um, that she did the best she could with what she knew. And yeah. Yeah. And when you understand that there's that level of trauma there too, I think that that gives so much more understanding 
you know. And yeah. I, I really don't think that a parent can get to that level without there being some level of trauma. I don't think mm. people are like that for no reason, for fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how, okay, so take us through your own journey with alcohol. So I know, when, at what age were you when mum passed away and did that affect your drinking or the way you saw alcohol? Yeah, I mean, I think going back, so I think well before that, I remember sort of in the later teens kind of, you know, having a few occasions where I had alcohol. Um, and I think that it's funny because I look back and I realised that there was something a little bit different in how alcohol seemed to affect me, or at least that's how I feel looking back. And that is that it didn't really take very much for me to kind of, I say, sort of hit a wall or kind of I often joke that it's kind of this alcohol-induced narcolepsy, but it was like I'd start to yawn not long after having a few drinks and then I'd basically hit the wall. And they're not to say that I had moments where I was, you know, not doing crazy things, but it's like my brain would just shut down. And, you know, what that meant for me, though, was that on the occasions that I did drink, I sort of had memory loss. And I remember those kind of odd occasions being quite, you know, they didn't sit well with me and I didn't like that. But I think for me where things kind of changed was when I had my children. So I was 24 and I fell pregnant with my first child. And I remember at that point, I certainly wasn't someone who would drink wine, you know, daily of an evening or anything like that. It was sort of more on social occasions. And it was after having my kids and my um, ex-partner was in the Defence Force. So I found myself long stints alone with no family living in Sydney and sort of being on my own, managing, you know, being a single parent. And it was very normal for Defence Wives to, you know, have a few glasses of wine of an evening because you weren't coming home to anybody to talk about your day. And I think that that was a big thing. And your life's so busy with little kids that I would have maybe two glasses of wine, which were probably three when you look at how you pour your own glasses. Um, But, you know, I'd finally get the kids to bed. And that was sort of my, you know, became my best friend. And, you know, um, that was the thing I knew I could rely on. And, pretty motivated um, as a you know in my 20s in terms of studying working part-time also for like I said for sometimes six to eight months at a time being a single parent and um, I that's all that my life could allow if you like I, I wonder if I sort of was able to let go of how much I actually would have drunk but you know I'd have those sort of sip on those wines and that kind of helped me unwind and and that was that but the thing is is that you know the kids obviously got older and more self-sufficient and I didn't really worry so much about the fact that I needed to get up several times a night or you know sit with them in the bath and do all of those things and so um I think it was much later that I sort of noticed that things sort of you know crept away on me but um I think back to when I sort of started realising that I wasn't happy with how much I was drinking and the girls were probably sort of young primary school and I remember just sort of feeling like I just want to sit here of an evening and just keep drinking. And so I remember then that's when the rules started coming in. So I would put sort of rules in place that I wasn't able to have more than half a bottle of wine Um, and that was kind of my limit. And then I'd notice on some occasions that would sort of creep and on the odd occasion there was something social, I think I kind of made it, I think I kind of um, justified drinking too much as, oh, I never get out, I never get to do this. You know, again, I would just hit the wall really early. I would wake up the next day and wonder how I got to bed or where I fell asleep. I 
would pass out at people's dinner tables. Like it was just, it was next level in terms of how, you know, people would say I would look completely fine and normal and then I would start a few yawns and then bang, it was, you know, I was, you know, um, I was out. And so, you know, um, I didn't like that and I obviously woke up feeling fairly full of self-hatred and loathing and thinking this isn't this isn't for me I don't want this in my life anymore and before my marriage broke up I remember trying to find out if there was any kind of support groups or anything and you know I looked online and it was before the hello Sunday morning kind of thing and you know there was a few blogs and whatever else but nothing that I sort of felt I could reach out to and so um my ex-husband had been away he'd been deployed and came back and I won't go into that long story but essentially the marriage broke up and I was at this point in my life where I realized and this was about maybe 12 years ago and then I was at this point where I realized that I could drink myself to you know in oblivion every night get up every day and I guess mirror exactly what my mum had been doing in in terms of function and looking you know everything on the outside was perfect but that's not how I felt and I I wanted you know working in mental health I'd seen a lot of people who felt that they had to parent their own parents and I didn't want that for my children so I just remember making that decision that I was going to stop and I was going to be very present and be there and so I did and it's interesting though like having met you Danny and having done the challenge and you know um, we'll go into that in a minute having done it twice but I realized back then I was very very alone it was the most lonely I had felt and what I I didn't have a I didn't have a group or like anyone to connect with I felt very ashamed and you know, we've talked about the fact that I didn't want to come on the podcast, or at least you stalked me to get me here. And I wondered what that was about. And, you know, it, it was about the fact that there's still some level of shame that I feel and that I'm talking about this is reflecting on the fact that there's something inherently bad about me. And that's, you know, I know that to be untrue. And I know that all the podcasts and the people I've listened to has actually been part of my inspiration and connection and Anyway, I didn't have any of that. So I was alone and it was hard and I grieved and I managed to not drink for about three and a half months, but I went to work every day and I was in a new job and I'd drive home every second Friday night. I found myself in this situation where the girl's dad was back in town and he had the children and I was like, oh my God, how do I, how do I actually get through a night without them they were the reason I got up every day and they were the reason I was making all these decisions and none of it was about myself so I used to cry and I used to honestly drive home and Sydney you know for most people listening would know that you know it's not a short drive usually so I'd have like a good hour in the car of crying thinking I don't even have my fucking best friend wine waiting for me when I get home and I felt ripped off and angry even though it was my decision and alone with your childhood, did you have a sense of loneliness then as well with mum in her addiction? And um, I don't know. I think that I was always very social. I've always felt, you know, at school I was a bit of a sort of, you know, class clown and sort of pretty happy and I've always been a pretty glass half full person. My dad was absolutely amazing and just this very calm, even-tempered, wonderful human and I've got a brother and sister who 
you know, we're very close now and, you know, it's not that we weren't close when we were younger, but I think that there was that sense of sort of shared kind of maybe shared trauma, you know, you're going through something similar. But And I always had close friends and I had friends who knew. I had a couple of friends because I was always quite embarrassed about sleepovers because of my mum being really unpredictable. So I had a couple of really close friends who were very aware of how I felt and how my mum was. And so that probably was really helpful. Um, And I've always been a talker. So I think that was really a saving grace for me. So no, I don't really feel like I felt alone. And you'll be very um, proud of me for this, but I was always a journal writer. So I kept a journal through late primary school and into high school. And I think, oh my God, if I knew what I knew now, if I knew that then, I just, I, I just didn't realize what a valuable tool it was, but it really was because I let it all out onto paper, and it was incredibly therapeutic and um, and helpful. During that time of feeling so lonely and alone, when I was trying to stop drinking, I think I'd gone from being someone whose children were with them all the time and never having had experience where they weren't there for a night because you know, if the girl's dad was away, like I was obviously on my own with them. And if he was back, I was there too. And so it was just about trying to be okay with being by myself. And I've never been good at that. And maybe that's more when I say I wasn't lonely. One of my coping mechanisms up until that point was always to surround myself with people and be totally distracted and stimulated. Uh, uh And I think that that's what was so vastly different is that I didn't have I didn't have that or I chose not to have that or I sat with that and I didn't know what to make of all of that and I was with my emotions and I didn't know what the hell to do with that. Wow so it's not like it wasn't the the loneliness per se it was the loss of the distractions. Yeah yeah. Mm, Which had been a pattern since childhood usually always comes back to something from the childhood but I find that really fascinating and that that was your coping strategy back then. Yeah. And I don't think I ever really, obviously never really consciously thought of that, but I guess one of the things about alcohol, and I've joked about this alcohol-induced narcolepsy or whatever I call it, but as someone who always was analysing and thinking and talking and 100 miles an hour, I never, I never was a good sleeper. I've never been a good sleeper. And I would lie, it was my only time that I was still and I would lie in bed for hours processing my day overthinking things and you know alcohol stopped that like obviously my sleep was shit but it it knocked me out and you know at the end of the hard day of being you know like I said I don't want to sort of say a sob story about being a single parent but obviously there were stints of that but I guess it was the thing that shut my mind down and yeah I'd wake up in you know all hours of the morning and whatever else but I'd you know and and hate myself and whatever I did but overthink some more but it just took the edge off in the beginning and um, I didn't really know there was any other answers about how you'd get to sleep and so found myself in this situation I'm three and a half months in of not drinking and I decided that that was a good effort and that was the best you know, it was the sort of the only kind of time I'd actually sort of taken that time off apart from both my pregnancies where I didn't drink. And then I met by chance my wonderful now husband. And so this is going back 10 years ago and I was incredibly happy and sort of socially drinking and drinking every now and then, but 
very quickly, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about this, but the, the miracle hadn't occurred and I wasn't an amazing moderator. I was somebody who didn't have an off button and never had. And mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden I'm enjoying my glasses of wine until, you know, I, I wasn't. And so, and I think over the last 10 years up until January of last year, I talked about how the girls got older and got more self-sufficient. Well, I happened to be one of the lucky people who married a person who loves to cook. So he does all the cooking every single night. Then he does the grocery shopping. He also cleans the kitchen afterwards because I'm not qualified to clean all of his tools and pots and pans. And he just happily goes about that. So you realize you're going to get hate mail from a lot of women right now. (laughs) Look, I totally understand. If I told you also he does all the ironing as well, that add to it. I feel like I have to defend myself and tell everyone I do the cleaning. But here I am and what am I doing with my evening? My my dinner's being made, like we're being looked after. Um, I don't need to do anything. I don't even need to iron anyone's uniforms for tomorrow because he'll do that because he likes (laughs) to do that. So I would have another wine. And I realised just how easily that was creeping up and my anxiety, I didn't realise what an anxious person I was and possibly I wasn't even an overly anxious person. I'm an overthinker. But what really became evident was my anxiety and waking up each day, even, you know, like, I mean, I'm not saying that I drank to excess every night or anything, but I certainly mostly drank most evenings and I would wake up thinking, you know, I don't want to run you know, I've always been a morning exerciser, but that's not really conducive. Like drinking wine of an evening is not conducive to getting up and feeling fab. So (laughs) yeah, I kind of battled with that on and off for for a while and I wanted to drink less and I put rules around things. I'd be the driver, which I always took very seriously. And so, but I was angry. Like if I drove, having offered, I'd actually be resentful. And, you know, I've heard a few people, I think it was Kate um, a few podcasts ago, talking about getting to a point where her weekends and holidays were kind of wasted in the morning, thinking, wishing away the morning so it could get to 12 o'clock um, where she could justify mm. having a drink. And that's exactly what started to happen, particularly in lockdown, where it's like, what else are we going to do? So it's the weekend. We'll have rosé at 12. And I realised what I was actually getting resentful about. So things like, you know, picking up my girls from somewhere or doing something would be like, fuck, well, I can't drink now until this, you know, until this time. And that's just really ruining my life. And yeah. So anyway, I stumbled across, I stumbled across you. And I remember it being the end of the end of December in 2020. So just keep in mind that for the like good 10 years more or more before then, I'd kind of knew that I was someone who couldn't handle alcohol um, and didn't have an off button and um, didn't like myself. So I, I don't know. I was scrolling through Instagram, started following people, and I found I found your. I think it was your first. Was it your first challenge? The three month January two thousand twenty one challenge. Mm-hmm. And anyway, after a few wines, I messaged you and. I can't even tell you the level of excitement the next day when I saw that you'd messaged me back and suggest and told me to do it. And I was like, done, I'm doing this. And it was honestly the first time I actually felt this, this sense that there were so many other people out there that were just normal, everyday good people who couldn't handle alcohol and that was okay. And, you know, we all had sort of our own stories and similar, you know, similarities and whatever else, but this sense of connection just really made me feel like 
I wasn't a bad person and wasn't someone who was defective. It was just alcohol wasn't adding anything into my life and learnt all the tools and rediscovered journaling. And I always thought, like I said before, I was a half glass full person and incredibly grateful. And up until this point, you know, I still describe my childhood as pretty awesome. And, you know, there was lots of positives and <laughs> I um, tried to look at things in a, in a really positive light, but I don't know where I was going with that. But, oh, the gratitude, yeah, journal. It was a, it was one of those things that sort of forced me to look at things that were fairly possibly minimal or small to, to people, but actually focusing on that as, you know, something that I was incredibly grateful for just sort of made me realise how fucking awesome life was. And I didn't feel sad and I didn't feel alone, which is probably raising the question as to why I actually drank again. So I, I did four months. So I did the three months challenge and I felt amazing. And then something happened leading up to the fourth month where I really started to believe or to convince myself. And you talk about alcohol as the sneaky bitch, totally the sneaky bitch. And I welcomed her in and I decided that I would be able to have the occasional glass of rosé with my husband of, you know, of, of like a Sunday evening, you know, and that's all it would be. And I would say that as soon as I made that decision within about a week or two, two weeks of totally, you know, this torment um, of should I, shouldn't I, what rules, going straight back to that, I just thought what the fuck have I done? And I never was able to moderate. Mm. So, yeah, so that's that's where I was and we're 2021. It would have been about sort of like April sometime. And for the rest of that year, I kind of stumbled through knowing that, okay, you know what, you've never actually said that you need to stop forever. Like I'd never actually said that to myself. The challenge was a three-month challenge that I thought I would keep going with, but I never said to myself, you should stop forever. And I was scared to say that. And I've heard other people, you know, since sort of saying, oh, it just feels really scary. And I don't know what switched for me, but I knew I needed to jump back on board. And so I signed up for the January 2022 challenge and I everything just fell in place. Like it was like everything I'd learned previously was still there. So I had the tools and the strategies. I felt extra connections, which was great. I just knew that life was just shit tons better. And I haven't stopped thinking that. And there's a couple of things that you taught me that really, really solidified that. And one of them was the play it forward. And anytime I thought, oh, look at that person having a nice glass of whatever in the sun or look at that, I wish I could have that. It was it was just it kicked in straight away and I, I just thought to the next day when I wake up and go, oh, I don't remember going to bed. I don't remember what I said. I don't remember what I did. I hate myself. And that feeling was just I was really over hating myself. And, mm. um, I, yeah, I think that it just everything clicked. And I think that what I did last year with four months was I didn't let myself get to a point where I pushed through to discover how much better life can be. And I got sort of a little bit stuck in maybe thinking about or revisiting maybe what I thought I was missing out on. But I realised so easily this year that there was absolutely nothing I was missing out on. In fact, the motivator for me was how much I missed out on while I was drinking. Oh, wow. I 
I mm-hmm. missed people's, you know, like my husband's 50th, which was the last social thing we had before lockdown. And I don't remember at what point I really passed out, but it was early. And, you know, that was typical for me. It was typical to the point where people say, oh, no, guess what? Such and such did a Jacinta. She missed out on the whole night. And I'll, I'm like, oh, my God, there's actually a drinking phenomenon named after me and I you know (laughs) it's it's true but you know I missed out on all of these things and I realized I don't want to miss out on things anymore I want to be the last man standing I want to be dancing ridiculously and and you know singing really shit karaoke um at 1am because I actually am still standing and you know it's just it's fucking great I love that. And I just have to quote Elton John here. I'm still standing. <laughs> yes. That's your theme song. It I've totally, decided. Oh, my God. It totally is. And I everyone love, will really love that. I love that. And also I was also thinking about bringing out your own line of, because I, I love merch, I'm all about merch, I, your own line of eye pillows, <laughs> just do, doing a Jacinta. <laughs> you know what? It's I, I can laugh now. My daughter you know, and look, my husband's been incredible, always been incredibly supportive. And he's someone who's able to have a few drinks and be totally fine. And he purposely chooses drinks that I don't, he knows that I don't like, um, which is really helpful. And he doesn't drink every day at all. Like, you know, he'll have maybe a few glasses on the weekend or whatever. And, you know, and he's embraced the alcohol free wine that I really love. And I found that really helpful for me. I know it can be really triggering for some people, but it's just having the nice glass like everyone else and not because I feel like it surprises me how open I am about wanting to talk about it um, and not like a preacher. Like I'm very I'm very fine around people that are drinking and want them to know that I'm actually not there judging them. It's more that I just know that I can't handle it myself. But um, there was actually a birthday, possibly was my 40th, where um, they got a, you know, how you can get photos of you put on a cake. They make it into the icing. Yeah, there were yeah, so yeah. many pictures of me. I'm going to say asleep on the lounge, but I think that obviously um, we know <laughs> that. Jacinta. Yeah. <laughs> usually with a cat on me because I'm a crazy cat lady. And so there's a picture of me basically passed up in the lounge on my on my cake and a picture memory came up the other day and my daughter showed me it. I'm like, oh, my God, look. I look back at that and cringe, but I also look back at that and just think, wow, like I'm so, it's just a great reminder of the fact that, you know, I, I my life is just so much richer and fuller and now that I that I don't. And that's awesome. I just feel, yeah, I just feel free and light and great. And it's amazing to wake up every morning and just feel, feel like you could just do like fist pumps and just fucking high five yourself because I never wake up feeling dread or hate you know feeling self-hatred I wake up and just think fuck I'm great and what a much better way to start your day oh so much better it's so much better just waking up you know with that mantra today's going to be a great day and and telling yourself well done it's such a a beautiful way to wake up as opposed to that self-hatred I guess one thing that you had in your favour because you would pass out and have this this narcolepsy that at least you didn't make a dick out of yourself. Like, Well, you know what, though? It's funny because so many people said that. And, look, let me tell you to and to anyone listening, there were plenty of times I made a dick of myself. You told me early on about how you were talking about how funny you think you are when you're drinking, and mm-hmm. that is so true. 
I I think I'm pretty bloody funny at the best of times, but honestly, I would and the rep, the repetitiveness. So I would tell everyone my story over and over again and think I was hilarious. But I did make a dick of myself, and you know I'm purposely probably omitting those from the podcast today. Um, but it was a little bit protective in that I was the first man down, which meant that you know I would hear other people's stories later, and I would generally wake up feeling in the end feeling okay because I'd had a longer time asleep but having said that and I think last year particularly when I first did the challenge and I went to I I purposely went to social occasions because I didn't want to be I didn't want to avoid those because I feared that it would be like that first time when I really felt alone I wanted to actually be social and I wanted to be included and I've really felt that there's been no no friend or no situation where I haven't still been included. And, and that's been, I think, because I, you know, I think it's a bit of luck sometimes where people feel obviously uncomfortable about their own drinking and may, you know, stop inviting you. But I'd been pretty lucky. Um, but what I noticed was just how, how much slower other people drank. And I realised that it wasn't just that I would have a few wines that would then affect me differently. It was also that I was probably really knocking them back. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think I did make a dick of myself and there is nothing cool about passing out at a dinner table or, uh, God, of all the places that I can think of. I guess it could have been a lot worse. could have been a bit more disastrous, but... I think it's been a really good motivator for me because I clearly missed out on lots of things and it was very rare for me to actually continue on and reminisce with people in their drunken stories the next day about some of the silly things they'd all done together and shared because I honestly didn't share in those or couldn't remember them and like I said I I did miss out on quite a lot of things and that was sad and and that's that's a bit of a dick move in itself um, particularly for those that you love and thinking about my girls who I'm incredibly close to and just absolutely fucking adore and the idea that they could possibly feel anything feel about me the way that I felt about my mum for many many years growing up really really started to weigh on me and that was a huge motivator and I feel like yeah I feel like it was a dick move in itself and and yeah, I can still be a dick though. That's the thing. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it might be a good thing. Depends on your style of dick. Yeah, like not a dick, like as in. If it's I, a good you know. dick. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds this is so not, wrong. Yeah, this is when I'm going to try not to take your podcast to an inappropriate sort of level, which I, you know, I, I, I've been prone before. to do. But yeah, no, I don't mean be a dick, uh, as in being nasty to people and you know whatever. But just an idiot. I can I can still have fun, and I guess that I'm really lucky in that way because I don't sort of I never really felt that I relied on alcohol to kind of lubricate sort of you know socially. I sort of you know I'm having like you said really deep conversations and better conversations, and then remembering them and asking about other people instead of talking about myself, which is all I've done in the last hour. But I. I like this episodes about you, just so you know. So okay, cool. you meant to talk about yourself. <laughs> but it's just really nice to kind of ask about others and talk about them and go away and kind of remember what they do and not feel like, oh shit, I don't know, I don't remember what he said he did or what, you know, oh, what she's been up to and all of that. That's one of the worst things I found too towards the end. And I like you would drink really, really quickly. So I would 
I would just have blackouts all the time because oh. it was, and I remember looking up, I could not figure out why I was having these blackouts all the time. And to be honest, I think it started when I quit smoking yeah, because I wasn't slowing myself down. And I think it may have been Ben, Ben, the psychologist, Ben Schiller. It might oh, have yeah. been him. I can't remember, but whilst I was still drinking, I remember saying, why am I having these blackouts? Like, just, you know, just, and they're, they're big, like they're big ones. And they, and just like whole nights were disappearing. And I think it was him, oh, don't quote me, or don't quote him, but it was to do with like how quickly, like how quickly your blood, your blood alcohol level rises. Yes. And so then, of course, I tried slowing it down, but, you know, it's just like the same thing. It's just exhausting trying to keep it, you know, just like trying to moderate, I guess. But I, I can relate. I can absolutely relate. But unfortunately, I didn't pass out often. I did <laughs> sort, of, sort of. I'd definitely be passed out before Ash or anyone like that. But yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. But um you came what you said earlier, which I really have to go back to because it was such a moment, was you realized how much, and this is for everyone listening to this podcast, how much are you missing out on because of your drinking? And that is such a great thing. Like with pull out your journal, write this question down, you know, to everyone, you know, contemplate that for a bit. Or even if you're not drinking. But just to even reflect on that, like how much did alcohol actually take away? What was I missing yes. out on? Because we often get so focused on what we're missing out on. If we don't drink, we feel like, oh, I'm going to have FOMO. I, you know, I feel like I'm missing out. Yeah. But actually, in actual fact, especially if you're a blackout drinker, you're yep. missing out on so much. Yeah, you're missing no, out on connection. You're missing out on amazing conversations. Well, that's the connection. But you're missing out on hours of your your night or your day whenever yeah whenever and events like important events and you know oh my God. um yeah yes. just so much and it is really funny because it's true like when I when I decided last year to drink again it was really about the fact that I felt that I was missing out on something by not drinking and I, I'm just so grateful that everything clicked this time around where just none of those thoughts kind of seeped in and you know I think it there's a there's another thing that really helped and I remember it was one of your very early podcasts where you were talking to Ash and you were you're talking to him about the fact that it seemed like it sort of was a bit easy for him and he said oh well once I made the decision the decision was made and then he didn't have that daily kind of torment about will I or won't I or any of those rules and I just really feel that that's you know that was really helpful too because it's like there's no decision to make I just the decision's made it's done and this is where I'm at and you know um I, I, th- I think it really does help knowing just how prevalent it is and how you know I, I remember when I was sort of stalking you online and one of the things that I really loved was the fact that you know you and Ash were so cool and you were like normal people and you you know <laughs> um well, normal cool people but I felt I'm not sure about that. Um, But this this sort of really cool um, idea that, um, you know, you don't need to turn to religion or spiritual things that maybe aren't aren't your thing. Not everything's for everyone, which is great. And that's why I think just having those options of different ways to connect and different people to connect with is actually really helpful. And I remember meeting many of the people, particularly in the first challenge when uh, it was all new to me, and just like, oh, my God. And I'd get off the Zoom call and I'd say to my husband, oh, my God, she was just like me and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was just really great to just go just, 
normal people and we know these things don't discriminate and can happen to any of us and it's just really cool to connect and for that I'm like obviously eternally grateful to you for 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 this and the the challenge the podcast and connections everything and connection is everything and and I you know I appreciate you saying that obviously but it really is it's you at the end of the day that does the work you know and to have that appreciation for yourself that you were the one that dug in you're the one that's done the work you're the one that's committed to your daily practice and however that looks you know you're the one doing the hard work and so it's really good to acknowledge that as well can I also say for anyone listening that might be driven by vanity is that I actually have lost 12 kilos and my I think you my, gave it to me <laughs> well I've had a delayed a delayed kind of love for chocolate because that was never I've never been a sweet tooth I've always been like a savory person but the last probably three or four months I've made a real comeback with the chocolate but um I you know I just sort of feel like there was all those empty calories that I was consuming but also the shit that I would eat after you know mm. the carbs I would crave you know and knowing how it messed with your blood sugar levels and everything like that but I would think nothing of like let's just order a pizza you know let's just eat a pizza and you know who's to say we hadn't already had dinner but probably I'd wake up and not remember that I ate that pizza which might have been protective but anyway um <laughs> I noticed a lot of things obviously in my sleep and I said that that was always an issue but you know, I started taking melatonin and just having a really, you know, amazing kind of sleep sort of routine and everything like that, which was incredibly helpful. And my sleep sort of, well, not sort of, it improved ridiculously, which then obviously made me wake up feeling rejuvenated, which meant I could start the day with exercise. And that just obviously adds a whole lot to your, your mental health and, you know, your state of mind and, and that sort of thing. So I think that all of that was helpful. And then I just noticed that my skin, because I was feeling so puffy and horrible as well. So just noticed heaps of those improvements as well. And um, that just obviously kept me going. That's really funny because a friend of mine, we were looking for photos of last Christmas for something and she'd come to my house and she's actually, she didn't do the challenge, but she stopped drinking the same time as me. And we dug up pictures of ourselves at the dinner table, lunch table at, at Christmas last year. And oh my gosh, we were like puffer fishes. We were just like, <laughs> and, and, and double parked. I'm like, the picture of me has got two glasses of wine. Wow. And the sun's shining in the background. And I'm like, wow, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you was you mentioned that the four-month mark that the sneaky bitch came calling and tried to tell you that you could just have a glass of rosé with your husband on a Sunday and that'll be it. And then you said how it quickly within two weeks you were pretty much back where you'd started. I mean, that's so, that, that sneaky bitch when she comes in, it's, it's the biggest thing for people, especially when they've had the amount of time off. And it, I just see it over and over and over again with people that have just like, I just thought I could have one. I just thought I'd be blah, blah, blah. Does the sneaky bitch come knocking now? Does she still come? And how do you handle her when she does show up? I know you said you play the tape forward, but do you, yeah, do you find that she really, shows up much? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. I think that I don't know I don't know how sneaky she is anymore and I feel like that's the probably my own work and the power I've taken from her if that makes sense without being too dicky but I feel like there are moments where I feel some sadness where and it's it is fleeting but it's things like and I you know I think going into the warmer like if we ever have bloody warm weather that sticks around but Things like that kind of, you know, I think you associate that kind of daytime drinking with sunshine and, you know, whatever. And 
uh, we recently went to the Sunshine Coast and I saw sort of people having a wine at lunch and whatever. And I'd look over and I'd sort of feel this like, oh, I, I can't do that anymore. And it's so fleeting. It doesn't, it doesn't actually enter my mind. I don't question it and I don't think maybe I should. It's just sitting with that. And I think that's the difference is that I'm okay to sit with that now. I, I sit with that and I go, yeah, okay, well, I can't have that glass of wine that's going to basically make me feel like well, basically shut my brain off and that's what I'm doing I'm shutting my brain down and I what am I missing out on and that's where the tape playing forward comes in I'm missing out on waking up tomorrow and hating myself and you know what it's not it's not some it's not something I want and so I think that there will be moments and there there still is now where I just sort of sit with that and look at that and what yeah maybe it's a little bit of I think you grieve and I think like with anyone with any loss you kind of there are days where it might sort of hit you sometimes but I think my ability to kind of you know very very quickly kick in about how that how does that actually look for you it doesn't actually mean yeah it's a really it's a good conversation to have because I think uh, you know we don't want to sort of spread this message to people that you're never going to think about it again the sneaky bitch is gone for good because even oh gee when was it must like she doesn't show up very much for me very often not like it yeah. in the first year and then it she it gradually she she you know she quietens down quite a lot but she still shows up so yeah. you know not just the big times like I've talked about a few times from the podcast after my dad had passed but I, I remember going Ash and I we took the girls over to Tenterfield and we got this beautiful little cottage in Tenterfield for the weekend it was stunning and it was winter and there was an open fire and I just had this craving for red wine and it would remind me of when we, when we were in Victoria and we'd go and stay in Dalesford and we'd drink wine and cheese, uh, drink wine and eat, eat cheese. And so I had this pang. And so rather than freak out, you know, I remember I just voiced it. Oh, I noticed it within me first. I just said, Tash, this is really interesting. I'm having a, like this craving for red wine. He's like, oh yeah, I am a bit too. And it was just more looking at it curiously and just, and just to sit with it. And I saw, oh, that's interesting. I'll just let it pass. And it got pretty strong there for a little bit, but I was like, whatever. And just had this sort of curiosity about it and just let it be there. And and it went, you know, I didn't have to act on it. I didn't have to freak out. I didn't have to make it this bad thing, but it is really important that people know that she can still show up. Like she can still show up. Doesn't matter how far down you are and you have to still be on guard, but you just can sit with it, have a bit of curiosity, I think is a good way of handling it. I mean, that's how I handled it. No, Um, I I think definitely. And I think that, I think that it's actually, you know, I think that it's really problematic if you think it's not going to. And I think one of the things for me is that my mum actually stopped drinking, not at that point. So things still sort of got bad for her before they got better, but she basically didn't drink for 10 years. And then my dad got terminally um, sick and she'd previously, she'd been a nurse in her career and she took wonderful care of my dad before he passed away. But after he passed away, after it was probably close to 12 years of not drinking, my mum drank again. And that's what, and so she died within, it was two days to, I think it was about two days short of 12 months to my, of my dad passing away. And it was the alcohol. So she'd gone from, you know, such a long time of abstinence to the sneaky bitch convincing her that, you know, in the depths of her depression of losing my dad, that that was the answer. And, you know, she was, it was amazing to see how straight back she was to obviously not just daily drinking. I think that, you know, 
we, we try and sort of piece together what was happening for her at that time because she lived by herself, but um, she essentially had a massive fall and a bleed to the brain and and she she died. And, you know, that was incredibly sort of, I guess, profound for me to kind of look at that and realise that, I guess, just what alcohol can do really and the grip it can have on you. Wow. I mean, that's huge when she's gone for all that time and, oh, God, it just kills me. It must kill you. Did, was there a conversation that you had with her around that when she took up the alcohol again? How did you feel? Yeah, no, she de- we definitely did. So we sort of, um, I mean, we'd had interventions with her before, but um, my brother and I had gone down there. My sister lived where she was and or nearby and we all went down and she'd been in hospital and sort of she was coming out and we were all like very much you know, this has to stop and what do we need to put in place? And, you know, we put some protective things in place like the Red Cross calls, like does a welfare check. I'm laughing because they actually never got through. It's actually quite, it's actually just really tragic. But, you know, where they ring each day and sort of check on her and she'd been out of hospital. So she'd been in, I can't remember how long on that occasion, but essentially she'd come out and, you know, I remember leaving and flying back home and seeing just sort of how sad and vacant she looked in her eyes. And that was the last time I saw her. In that week, she was straight back to to drinking and then, you know, she'd had her fall and whatever else. But yeah, it's um oh, it's just it's just one of those really tragic kind of situations where it gives you perspective on life on so many levels and not just about, I guess, how harmful alcohol can be, but also just on what's important in life and I guess it sort of also really motivate, motivated me to kind of want to be the best I can be and not put my kids through through that and be around as long as I can because both my parents were only 65, so incredibly young really. And, you know, I want to be around and annoying them and for a, a, lot, a long time to come and I knew mm. that I, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a trajectory that I wanted to go down and so, the, yeah, so... It, turned out serving as quite a motivator but yeah you know it's um sad it is really really sad I'm I'm, it's it's devastating actually yeah it must be so hard to just to see the fallout you said earlier that you felt embarrassed when you'd have friends come to stay was there a level of shame attached with your mum's drinking did you feel some shame around that when you were a kid yeah she oh big time and I think that because in my view, all of my friends had mums that were all like probably like Stepford wives and all happy and certainly not yelling at their children in front of others. Um, I'm sure they did behind closed doors, but I guess I saw everyone's mums as being these nurturing sort of like affectionate sort of people and that wasn't my mum and she would she would drink and then she would, because um, she worked night duty a lot of the time, so she'd have a sleep in the afternoon and then she'd wake up or dad would wake her to get ready for work and she would she, like it's very odd looking back and trying to make sense of it but she would just be screaming and you know swearing and really quite abusive and I remember once having two friends come away with us for the weekend um, and my mum I just remember being woken up by my mum screaming and calling my dad the worst words you can think of and words that I say myself occasionally but not on this podcast but I just remember going oh my god because as a 14 or 15 year old girl I was probably about 14 um hearing your mum calling your dad all of these names and my dad like I said was just this calm really like even tempered person it was just mortifying so yeah look there was a lot of shame there but also you know I think even when she got better and I look at sort of how her life went she had no one she felt 
comfortable to talk to about these things. She never, she never sort of reached out or connected and she felt very ashamed. Um, she'd sort of grown up in this like sort of pretty in this sort of Catholic upbringing and taken to confession when she stole some chocolate and in her view you know she was private privately schooled and you don't you're not out you're not an alcoholic that's for that's for people that are kind of down and out so she had these views that really I think really like stopped her from being able to kind of reach out and connect and so the shame was probably there from an early age for me and I think I probably took that on board and took that forward and um mm. you know doing these challenges has worked wonders in trying to challenge that for myself and working in mental health you'd think I'd have a pretty good grasp on the fact that talking about these things and normalizing it and you know telling your story are actually really important things to do but I guess deep down there's that struggle of still some, some yeah some shame there that sort of mm exists that I'm trying to chip away at yeah well it's interesting how you said earlier you felt like with the podcast and me having to stalk you was because you felt <laughs> a bit of that rise of that shame yeah and it's interesting how you know that just carries through yeah it's also I think as I and I, I'd be interested for everyone out there who are you know I guess mental health workers or health workers that the idea that you need help for your own health or mental health, and I've, I've worked with a lot of doctors and they talk about this and they're very, very reluctant. I think there's quite a high suicide rate amongst lots of health professionals, but there's such a reluctance to reach out for help themselves because they fear that they'll lose registration or it'll come back to, you know, they'll know someone perhaps that, you know, they'll be reaching out to or, or whatever and I think that we we need to do something about that and not so long ago I remember exploring the whole um, income protection and life insurance and various things and I remember the insurance broker saying to me that because I'd reached out after my marriage broke up for um, to, to see a psychologist that actually I couldn't get income protection to cover me for if I, if I was to find myself um, not being able to go to work for mental health reasons. And so I remember them doing, they actually did the full audit where they get all of your GP notes any time you've ever gone to the GP. And so like any time I was anxious and went to talk about that, any of those things, it was all information they gathered. And I feel really, I feel really angry about that because as a mum, I'm really strongly, I, I strongly advocate for reaching out and talking to others. And I want my girls to never feel shame about asking for help and talking to people. And if there's someone that needs medication, whether it's for depression, anxiety or anything else, then, and, and that's what they need, then I don't want them to feel any kind of, you know, stigma around that. And I feel like we need to, we still need to go a fair way to kind of knock, knock down those walls, I guess. So, yeah, I guess that's why I sort of talked myself into facing facing that and coming on today. Bloody hell, that's a disgrace, isn't it? It's like discrimination yeah. for just reaching out, which, you know, God, we're just, whether you work in the mental health, you know, or you're a doctor, whatever, like you're a human being that still has emotions it- and trauma and all these things and coping strategies and God, I mean. And, and actually reaching out for help, you would imagine actually stops people from, actually you know for the most part taking time off work oh my god or god forbid hurting themselves or any other serious things that they do because they're not actually connecting or reaching out and we all know that talking with people alleviates the burden or knowing that you're not alone all of those things they they help and this idea that there's this whole system that kind of uh prevents us from doing that or at least frowns on it or we get penalized for it really makes me pretty 
pretty angry, but you know, it's disgusting. In fact, it should be the other way around. It's like, have you ever reached out for help? Have you reached out for for mental health help? And if you answered no, it should be like, uh, uh-uh, you're out because yeah, <laughs> you're just a train wreck waiting to happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Look at you keeping it all in and, you know, self-medicating or isolating yourself or all of those bad things. We know how you're going to end up. Yep. Not like (laughs) Joe over here who's actually reached out and talked to someone. Well, we'll give him income protection because he's a he's a healthy person, you know. Healthy coping mechanisms for Joe. But no, it's the opposite, which is really shit. But uh, Mm. anyway. (laughs) God. The other thing I just wanted to touch on briefly, because it does come up so much of someone that's had the time off. And then they get the sneaky bitch and then we're back to where we started again. It's, I just, like I said, I see it, I see it, I see it, I see it all the time. So I guess I took like 50 turns before I got to where I am of just realizing this isn't working for me. But honestly, you know, what advice would you give someone who's had the time off and they're toying with the idea? I've got a wedding coming up and I think I'm just going to drink for that. I, I just think it's a really interesting topic because I remember initially feeling really disappointed in myself and I remember all the people from the initial challenge that had continued on and not drank and I was like really like oh wow I'm so envious but I very quickly just went that this is my journey and for whatever reason I needed to prove to myself uh, that you know that a miracle hadn't occurred and my brain hadn't changed um, and I hadn't become someone who could moderate and I just think my advice would be that if you if you stop drinking in the first place, you've recognised that it's not serving you any you know any positive purpose, um, then don't don't let it talk you into or don't talk yourself into believing that it's actually all of a sudden going to be this different different thing. It's going to be the same as it's always been, and it's going to bring you what it has before. And so yeah, play it forward. Think about think about all the things that you actually what it took from you um and 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 you know don't do it yeah absolutely there's in some ways too like when we're not classified as a full-blown alcoholic yeah we don't classify or see ourselves as that and more like in my case very much what you know what they call a gray area drinker yeah in some ways that's it you can feed yourself more of a lie then because you kind of convince yourself that I will become, I will become a moderate drinker, even though all the feedback I'm getting is calling absolute bullshit on that. It's just, there's that part that goes, no, 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 you, you'll be right. Next week, you're going to be different. You know, oh, it's, it's totally, you're spot on because I mean, I, you know, I guess if I was classifying myself, I'd be the same. Like I've sort of always thought that gray area where you're like, well, I, I've, I never sort of like get up and think I need to drink for anything like that. I was sort of like an evening drinker or whatever, but, and, and obviously it didn't agree with me. And um, it, I I couldn't stop when I had some but yeah it's just one of those things that I think you can convince yourself you're actually like all of your friends or you're actually like a lot of other people and I think that's what crept in for me it's like come on just give it a good hot go like you know you work hard you're a good person you know you're functioning all of those things I think you can talk yourself into that but I, I just wish that people could see down the track and I know I'm only 10 months and I hear from people like yourself and other people that are like well and truly down you know like got some years behind them but it really does get better and I think that that's the difference between where I stopped last year with the four month mark and where I am now and you know I used to actually honestly out loud say to my husband what do people do of an evening that don't drink wine like what the fuck do they do like how do they relax like what do they do like you know, and it baffled me. It, it really did. And 
what do they do on the weekend? And now I'm sure he's sick of hearing just like, oh, my God, I've done so much this weekend and it's so full and, you know, I'm still yet to find a skill or a hobby. So if you've got some suggestions for me, um, that's a bit of a joke with everyone in the household and my friends because I feel like I need some sort of creative outlet, but I'm pretty crap at all of those things. Take Um, up singing lessons. I would love to. Singing is the thing I'd love to do. So I'm very, very jealous of you, Danny. Um, do that it's easy anyone can sing it's good for the vagus nerve it's awesome kelly Bruhaha in our challenge yeah. in our challenge group who's been on this she's wanting to start up some kind of like singing for healing kate morrison who's in our grads group she's oh, she's that's a singing right. teacher she's a, she can sing though you, you guys can sing but look i'm it's happy so <laughs> everyone can sing it's just a matter of confidence and I'm positive of it. I'm just positive of it. You know, it's right, I need confidence. to find like an, an 80s ballads kind of singing teacher who can, you know, help me to sing some of those uh, some jo- of those belters. Yeah, join a singing group or there needs to be like someone out there needs to start like a pub choir that's that doesn't involve drinking. You know, yes. one of those that so they get around, everyone just gets in a group and sings. So oh, I like that. I um, think that's your mission. I'll, I want okay, you to start well, taking singing on. lessons. Should I choose to take it? That is my mission. I think I'll take that on. It's a, it's a challenge. But, um, yeah, I think it would be really good if people could just sort of, you know, see how awesome it gets and how much freer and lighter and happier things are down the track. And I think that's what you've got to kind of push through. And that's what Absolutely. I've done this time. And I'm really glad to have got to this point where it does feel a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. And like Tara said a few episodes back, Tara, from our group, there's times where you think I'll never become that person that doesn't think about it. And then she's like, now I, I don't think about it. And I'll, I'll never be that person that can have fun at a party. And it's just like, I'm the first on the dance floor, you know, having a yeah, great time. And you can, you know, you can get there. I'm interested, you know, when you said that you would be triggered through loneliness or perhaps not, wasn't actually loneliness as we kind of broke down, but it was more this lack of distraction. So how do you cope with that now when there is a lack of distraction? If you don't have the kids around, your husband's out, how do you how do you cope with that now? What's your coping strategy for that? <laughs> I think I'm very much a work in progress. So as we speak, my husband has um, gone down to Canberra for the weekend and my girls have got different social things on. And so in my mind, I'm like, what am I going to do? I've got this weekend by myself. And so I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play really loud music and clean the whole house all weekend. But having said that, Danny, this is what I still haven't mastered. And I've talked to you about this. I need to learn how to meditate. I feel like I'm like a, a, a breath school a breathwork school dropout. And I feel like I need to put some, put some sort of, perseverance and some hard yards into learning to still myself and be okay with that because at the moment I still I'll go running I it it it, the stimulation's still there it's just what I do is and I always feel really positive afterwards because music makes me happy and cleaning makes me feel like things are in control and I feel good about those sorts of things but I very much feel like my next step and my next challenge, possibly before singing, um, is to actually learn to be still and to meditate and to do things that actually help me to sit with things and be okay with that. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I've got two lots of two words for you. First up, yoga nidra. <laughs> yes. 
you know, it's so simple. It's guided. It's it's easy. You know, you just lay there and you do it. It's life-changing. Like yoga nidra is is just a superpower. So you can Google them. There's and you of- sent me the link and I promised you I was going to look into it. So I need to keep that promise. Yeah, I, you've got to go do that. That one with Mark Purser on, the pod, on this yes. podcast channel. It's brilliant. And it doesn't even just think, I'm just going to do it. I'll even do just do 10 minutes of it and see how okay, I go. Okay, well, this weekend I'm by myself. All right, let me know how you go. Okay, and um report back. The second lot of two words is Sam Brown. Our beautiful oh, Sam Brown and her beautiful breathwork a... challenges. Like she's so, and that's good for a busy mind, you know, using the breath the breath work stuff to kind of, if you can't be in full stillness. But that's also the great thing about yoga nidra because you're going from one you know, you're putting your focus on different body parts, one to the next, to the next, to the next quite quickly. Mm. And so even if your mind does wander, it doesn't wander for long because that that kind of voice that's guiding you brings you back. And so I you might start that. to, yeah, you might start to go into a bit of, oh, I should do this, should do that. Blah, blah. But then you might be down at your feet and then you're like, oh, right, I'm back at my feet. And you'll do, you know, you'll go in and out of it, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful um, practice. Anyone listening, you know, yoga nitra, it's, it's, just amazing okay I'm going to report back and you can have me back on in six or 12 months time with my yoga nidra um yeah critique and how it's changed my life oh yes please let's let's definitely do that and um but that's amazing and it's so great that you're able to find a way even if it is cleaning and putting on music I think that's fantastic I have to admit that when I want to clean the house John Farnham full house yeah you're the voice just, taking the pressure down. It's Barnsley just, oh. and me cleaning my house. It's like one of my greatest joys in life. And then a bit of cold chisel. Oh, <laughs> God, yeah. Yeah, no, now you're talking. I'm, I'm such a great uh, So am I. And it's that's the thing. A... And I just totally embrace it and I own it and I love that. Yeah, but I do love that feeling too of getting the house organised and getting clean because it makes me feel in control and then it makes me feel so much better to get my space clean and it's just yeah. calms me it's, it I is it's calming chaos. and then you just want to tell your family don't wear clothes anymore I don't want to wash any or dry <laughs> any or do anything with them just I go know. and be naked somewhere where I just <laughs> anyway yes all right so Jacinta thank you so much if you could go back in time and speak to to your younger self 16 year old Jacinta what would you say to her what advice would you give her I find this a little hard because I really do think that it sounds really cliche, but life is about sort of self-discovery and kind of making decisions and sort of navigating the world. And I fear that I fear that 16-year-old me wouldn't listen to the advice I have. I wish I could undo the fact that I've always felt like a really immediate gratification type of person. I wish I could sort of sit with the benefits of delayed gratification and then sort of how that looks. But I think that I'd just be kinder to myself. I think that I've always really battled with this, you know, huge self-criticism and um, being so hard on myself. And I just wish I could sort of go back and say, maybe make all the decisions and go through what you have to go through and, you know, you'll be resilient and whatever else and you'll be great. But just be kinder to yourself. And I, you know, mm. that's that's what I, yeah what I'd say I think that's such beautiful advice and one that we can all take on you know just be kind to yourself for everyone that's battling and everyone's doing this work and everyone that's finding it hard just be kind to yourself absolutely yeah 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 Yeah, that's really beautiful thank you so much for your time today and I, I can stop stalking you now Oh, thanks, Danny. You can keep stalking me now with Yoga Nidra, but yeah, thanks for having me on. (laughs) Thanks, Jacinta. Bye. Okay, bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.